What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm John Rojas and I am super pumped to be back on the intro with you. Thanks for downloading the episode. Thanks for subscribing to the show. We really, really do appreciate that. We've got an awesome episode this week. Really excited about who we're bringing to your ears. Our guest this week is economist Kate Rayworth. Kate has written a book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. It just came out earlier this April, and you should definitely check it out. It is absolutely fantastic. Chris talks to her about what it means to reframe our understanding of what economics is and does and gets into conversations with Kate about how to break our addiction to growth, redesign money, finance, and business, and all kinds of awesome stuff. It's definitely a new way to look at things, and it's one worth listening to. Before we jump into the episode, I just want to do a few housekeeping things. As always, you can reach out to us on the show by emailing us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can start a conversation with Chris and I on Twitter by messaging at smartpeoplepod. This is your friendly reminder. If you make a lot of Amazon purchases, please do it through our Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through the link comes at no extra cost to you, and it gives us a nice little kickback from Amazon. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please go ahead and do so. Super easy, and it makes sure that you get every episode of Smart People Podcast. And if you haven't reviewed the show, take a minute or two, head over to iTunes, 
leave a rating, review, and comment over there. It really does help out the show and get us in front of more people. All right, that's it for housekeeping. I hope you enjoy this week's episode with Kate Rayworth. Well, Kate, first, thank you so much for being on the show. Really excited to talk to you today. It's my pleasure. We're going to be talking economics, and it's something that what I found you have been able to do is make it a semi, and I have to say semi, semi semi-sexy topic. How do you feel (laughs) about that? I'm very excited about that. I've also (laughs) made it kind of semi-ridiculous by calling it donut economics and bringing junk food into the first line of it. So uh, (laughs) I'm I'm hoping that I'm making economics uh, more accessible and more fun and more humorous for a lot of people. Well, I think accessibility is the key here because I always say this when I get a chance to speak with brilliant people such as yourself, specifically those that are professors, I, I remember those classes such as economics and finance and uh, psychology. And I feel like the difference between hooking someone and just telling them is relating it to the real world. And that's what you do. Has has that been something you have always tried to do in your teaching and writing and all of those things? Yeah, what I I do, and and I've worked not just uh, in university, but I've worked in NGOs and I worked in the UN and I worked in the villages of Zanzibar for many years. So I really love communicating with people from all different backgrounds and finding words that will express something in a completely everyday way, using everyday metaphors, um, using language that people say, huh, I get that. That's interesting. Is that economics? Wow, I didn't, I thought economics was equations. And you're telling me it's this really interesting conundrum. So I love finding very simple words and very simple pictures to communicate what are apparently complex ideas, because actually I think once we express it in simple and compelling ways, we can all get involved in this debate. And that makes it much more interesting. Well, and I have to agree with what you said, and I know what you write about, that we need to be having this debate because there are things fundamentally broken, in my opinion, with the way we are, in my again, in my opinion, specifically doing business. And so when I think of economics, that's just what I think of. The companies that I go speak with, that I go consult for, and I just don't see it working that much longer. Right. And I think many of the businesses that are operating today have grown out of a very 20th century mindset about what the economy is and what business's role is and what success looks like. And you, first of all, you see at the, at the level of many companies that's not working Um and they realize that their own supply chains are under stress. For example, companies that are buying, uh, selling cotton clothing from around the world are finding that the cotton that they're buying um, is facing real insecurity because maybe there's a drought regionally um, that's affecting the supply of their materials. So, so at the very material level, many companies are finding things are getting more tricky and we can't go and do business in the same way that we used to. But also, I think there's a new generation of people coming into business saying, you know what, I want this to I want this to mean more than just the product we sell. I want to believe in the business I work for. I want to feel good about the contribution it's making to the world. And it's fantastic because there's a this generation coming in who are putting higher expectations about the business of business into their working life. 
And that's kicking open all sorts of interesting opportunities to ask, what is the role of business? And in fact, a successful business is one that transforms itself to start doing good in the world and making positive contribution. And then people actually want to work for it. So I agree that the old business models are so out of date, we need to push straight past them and come to a new kind of business. But that is very possible. And there's some great examples of it in the world. Oh, well, I want to I want to talk about that and how it's possible. Uh, but first, let me start with and again, this is maybe for just my own knowledge, but I see it everywhere. This idea of, you know, OK, capitalism and I see it all the time and I can only really speak for here in America, but I know it's everywhere. You have all of this um, institutional money and these investors coming in and they're helping these startups. Therefore, the wealth is going in a very small pool of people able and willing to invest in these startups. And then these companies are only concerned or primarily concerned with their fiduciary duty of increasing essentially the return on the investment. And therefore, everything's getting squeezed. Everything. And I see it everywhere. People, when when one job goes away, they don't hire somebody else. They just say, hey, you have to do the job of two now because we have all of these tools and technologies. Do you see the same thing? Have you thought about that? And do you see a way out of that? I've definitely seen the same thing. I've worked with a very wide range of companies um, the last five years, presenting them my ideas about what 21st century success looks like, where we meet the needs of everybody within the means of the planet. And that sounds simple, but it's I believe it's the 21st century goal. And when I present to them what that looks like in a picture and say, you know, can we meet the needs of all people in the world within the means of the planet? And what does it look like for your company to be part of that? You get a real range of reactions. So the typical company, I'd say, starts by saying, well, that may be a very noble goal, but what are we going to do? We're, we're going to do nothing. That's not our business. Our business, as you just expressed it, is this narrow fiduciary duty. We're going to get the return on on for profit. We're going to shareholder dividends. We have this very, very narrow focus. And that, as I was saying earlier about the three of supply chains, it's big, many companies are beginning to realize that it's not good enough anymore. That that may have worked in the 1980s, 1990s, but companies are already starting to feel, I think, the pressures back when you disrespect the workers in your supply chain, when you disrespect the living world on which you depend. So more companies are moving, I'd say, to the next level up, which is, okay, we'll do what pays. We will make our brand green because apparently there's a niche market there and consumers will pay more. Or we'll be um, carbon efficient because apparently that's also cost efficient. <laughs> so it's a first step into actually doing better, but it's very narrowly framed as in, so long as it pays, we'll do it. And it sounds good. It sounds a kind of greenwash. The third step would be to go further and say, okay, we'll, we'll do our fair share of the effort, right? So okay, we know that globally carbon, carbon emissions need to be cut. What's my country's... Uh, target oh let's say my country set a target of 10 percent cuts over the next 15 years okay well we'll do 10 percent cuts in our supply chain over the next 15 years that's that's i'm not going to critique that per se because at least we're beginning to be setting ourselves standards by what science demands you know what mm. actually needs to happen in the world and we'll start raising our ambition to that but the real danger of it it makes me think of a time when imagine yourself going to a restaurant with all your friends and everybody has a great meal, a couple of beers and some dessert. And then the bill comes and everyone says, oh, I'll chip in my fair share. 
you know, if you're the one holding the bill and adding the money up at the end of the night, it usually doesn't add up. It never adds and up. A- <laughs> it ne- I, know exactly, I knew exactly where you were going. Yep. <laughs> You've been there. Yeah. So that's the real danger of this fair share is in that actually people often don't quite do their fair share and it doesn't add up. And it can very quickly switch from what's my fair share to contribute to what's my fair share to take. So I've heard, I've seen some companies uh, looking at, say, the global carbon budget and their their response becomes... So how much of that is ours? How much carbon can we emit? Or how much how much pollution can we produce? How much dirty water can we dump in that river? That is absolutely old thinking that we want to get away from. So I'm very suspicious about this idea of talking always about my fair share of contribution. We need to go beyond that. So the next level, the fourth level up beyond fair shares is we're going to do no harm. And that actually is quite ambitious. Sometimes it's called mission zero. We're going to... Uh, produce as much energy through solar panels as we use in this building. We will put no dirty wastewater in the river. That's really a step up and it's ambitious, but it's a strange place to stop. As the designer, William McDonough says, you know, doing less harm is just doing less harm. Why not just go break through that glass ceiling of ambition and do good? And so you go from up to the top step. So you started with, I'm going to do nothing. Then we're going to do what pays. Then, well, we'll do our fair share. Then we go up to, okay, we'll do no harm. Mm. But you can break through that and go to a transformative mindset, which is, we'll be generous. And the person whose ideas I really find inspiring on this is the biomimicry expert, Janine Benyas. And she says, old finance and old business says, how much value can we extract from this process that we're involved in, right? And that's the shareholder mentality you're talking about. How much value can we extract? Janine Benya says, no, you need to flip that round. You need to say, how many benefits can we layer into what we're doing that we can actually give some away? And that's a completely different question. And it's the kind of question that if you were to say that to employees of a company, what our company is now going to do is ask this question. How many benefits can we layer into what we do as a business so that we can give some away? I bet a grin would break out across the, the faces of so many of that younger cadre of employees because then you suddenly feel like what I'm doing through the core business that we're doing, we are generosity to the world. We're going to give clean air back to the city. We're going to put clean water back in the rivers. We're going to give um, uh, put, put some of our ideas in the creative commons so we're going to be giving ideas out to the community we're going to make podcasts and let people listen to them for free right mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. a generous space to be in and it's a really wonderful thing to do it's why so many people go home after work at night and spend hours programming adding to open source software and open source design because they love to give and feel that they're part of a bigger project so I completely agree that this narrow idea of fiduciary duty still pervades so much of business And yet there are examples of businesses and um, employees and leaders in businesses who have gone up this ladder of inspiration and want to be generous. And the way they do it is by rewriting what I would call the DNA of their business, how it's structured, what its purpose is, where the finance comes from and who owns it. And those are the transformative changes that allow you to break into a far more generous mindset. You know, I love that. One of the things I want to hone in on is that finance aspect. Not because I know more about it, but because it seems like it's still at the core of any business. I mean, and I hate to say it, but it just is, right? Do you have the money to create the product or give the service to grow and scale and 
all of those things. And I can almost hear people out there saying, this all sounds great, but let's live in the real world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as an economist, like, how do we make that switch? How do we start um, changing the nature of, of finance and money as you talk about it? So, of course, people want a fair return on their investment. But again, and some people just want a return on their investment and will still have a very narrow focus of when I invest my money, all I care about is that percentage that uh, I'm promised. But there are others who say, hell, I, I have children. I have grandchildren. When I invest, I'm investing in the future of the world. I want to make sure that the, what my money gets to support and make happen in the world is actually going to create a beneficial future. So how could I do that? How could I get a fair return while also knowing that I'm helping to grow something that I want to see more of in the world? And of course, there are some fantastic ethical banks and ethical funds that are springing up. Um, I've got my savings invested in a wonderful bank in, in Europe called Triodos, where I put my savings in, I get a fair return, but I can find out all, all the information I want about the kinds of um, people they're lending it to, the kinds of projects, investing in community wind power or community solar power, uh, investing in employee-owned businesses. And I feel great about investing my money like that. Mm -hmm. There are also people like John Fullerton, I'm not sure if you know of him, he runs the Capital Institute, um, based very near you in the US. Um, he's got a wonderful idea about regenerative economy and regenerative capitalism, thinking about capitalism in terms of the multiple capital. So not just financial capital, but how about regenerate natural capital and social capital, community capital. And he used to work for JP Morgan, right? So he came right, right. out of the heart of Wall Street finance. And he took what he learned from there and has transformed it into rethinking finance with regenerative principles at its heart. So there are people who, like yourself, who've come out of mainstream finance, got a bigger vision, and are using your insider knowledge to reinvent it with the right kinds of principles at its heart. I'm not a financial person. That's not the background I come from. So I love hearing from people who are experts in that area about the kind of innovations that they can see are possible and about the kinds of businesses and the financial investing opportunities that they can say, yeah, I can see you're getting the return and then you're generating something more. But I, I'm really optimistic that there's huge ways of reinventing this because finance is just a construction. Money is something we've designed and invented. And in any kind of money that you have, we're so used to you know the dollar or the, the pound, but any kind of money has three really important characteristics. Firstly, who gets to create it? Is it the government? Is it the commercial banks? Is it the community? What kind of character does it have? It's usually given a positive interest rate. And thirdly, what can it be used for? And every kind of money in the world has those three attributes. Who gets to create it? What kind of character it has? Whether it has positive interest rate? And what you can use it for? You can change the design of money and people can create complementary currencies in communities that doesn't have an interest rate. It's issued by the community itself and it can only be used within that community. That money totally changes the relationships within the community. So once we start realizing that money is just a, a design of social trust that we've created, we can redesign it and we can change who issues it to start investing in things that matter. Mm. We just have to jump out of the water and realize that the kind of money that we're so used to, the kind of finance that we have is one of many possible designs. Yeah, it's funny when I think about it. I was just talking to somebody yesterday 
the people I know that make the most money work in some type of financial, either in the finance industry or work in finance within an organization. And I find mm -hmm. it so interesting because a lot of them, it's just making sure the, the wheel turns, right? It's coming up with new structures and formats, much of which they don't even understand, as we saw in 2008, just to make sure that this whole economy keeps going as it, quote unquote, you know, should. And to me, that just seems crazy. But w what I'm also thinking is those are the same people that are going to reject, in my opinion, um, this notion because they're making money. They're profiting enormously off of it. This wealth gap that's growing is in their favor. And so how do we how do we retake the power as little people? Yeah. And I'd say, I'd say, I'd say it's, it's kind of even more, uh, serious than, than that because they're not at what they're doing is not making sure that the wheels of the real economy keep turning. They're making sure that the wheels of the financial system keep turning mm. and, and it's finance in service to finance. Yes. It's, it's right. It's it's in its own bubble, and it's extractive value that it creates. So it's extracting money. It's it's leveraging opportunity from here and uh, moving, shifting value from one place to another. It's not actually generating new real value in the world. So let's start back at the beginning. Economics means household management, and if we think of that on the planetary scale, it couldn't be more important today to manage our planetary home in the interest of all of its inhabitants so that we can meet the needs of everyone within the means of the planet. And the real economy, the space in which we produce goods and services, whether that's through the market or through the state or through within our households or indeed within the commons in the, the creative spaces we create together, all of those are ways of producing goods and services. That's the space in which we actually meet our needs. Finance should be a tool in service to that. As Hunter Lovins says, finance should be in service to life. At the moment, we have the real economy in service to finance and the natural world being sucked dry by it. So we need to reverse this whole thing. But as you said, how on earth are we going to do that? Because right. the people who are benefiting from finance are benefiting very nicely from it. I think I take great inspiration, actually, from uh, Buckminster Fuller, the wonderful American uh, inventor of the last century, who said to change something, uh, don't fight the existing reality. You need to build a new model which makes the old model obsolete. Mm. Now, so rather than taking that power away from mainstream finance, well, of course, we want the regulation put in place that actually stops it from being so extractive and creating the kind of bubbles and crashes that we've seen. But additionally, I think we need to create a parallel system where ordinary people say, you know what, I don't want to invest my money in those kinds of commercial banks that are doing such damaging things in the world. I'm going to seek out an ethically based bank and I'm going to put my savings there for a fair return. So we can each choose to move our money into the kinds of investments that we believe that we want to be part of and call for governments to put the regulations back in place to transform, not just to regulate and minimize its damages, but to transform finance. But it's a really naughty problem because, of course, finance has huge influence over government. I mean, after the, the financial crash, so many people from Goldman Sachs suddenly became absolutely instrumental in, in running the U.S. government. Right, in the government. Um, That's right, crazy. In the government, yeah. yeah. And, and, of course, finance has huge amounts of money that it can spend on elections. So there's a huge 
invisible market for political influence that is often ignored in mainstream economics, but is very, very powerful, where those who are benefiting from the status quo get, get the money to reinvest in ensuring that they continue to benefit from the status quo. So there's a lot of naughty things in place. Now, if we look at the whole thing, you can feel overwhelmed by that. <laughs> you can feel that we can't change this system. But I really believe that we can change it by starting to grow a new one, starting to show an alternative, a positive where with it at the community scale, where it's rooted in community, it's rooted in um, multiple values and moving away from that mainstream at the same time as getting regulation back in. So I don't want to sound too rosy about it. No. But I yeah. also don't want to be overwhelmed by it because otherwise then we'd be, be defeated. Be right. defeated. Right. And I mean you kind of break out these you know, in donut economics, that's essentially what you're saying is here is the seven concepts that we can utilize to create this new economic system. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but tell me A if that's a, a correct summation, but also um, a little more about that, how you came to this and what you see, the you know, the reason you wrote it, the reason you put these ideas down in comparison or in conjunction with what we were just talking about as a solution. Yeah. So the reason I wrote this book is because I went to university 25 years ago wanting to study economics because I believed it would equip me to tackle the issues in the world that I cared about. I wanted to tackle poverty. I wanted to tackle environmental degradation. And I wanted to speak the mother tongue of public policy. But when I was at university, I was incredibly disappointed by what I was taught because the issues that I cared about were treated as somehow marginal. They were uh, off to the side. You could study them if you want, but many people just didn't even bother with them at all and go straight through and specialize in finance. And I felt too embarrassed ever to call myself an economist because I really disagreed with the mindset I've been trained in and I walked away from it. But through all my experience, I realized you can't actually walk away from it because it is so powerful in the world and frames the way we think. And so many people today are saying we need a new economic story. We need a new narrative of the kind of economy that we want. And I absolutely agree with that. But we should never forget that most of the world's powerful stories are told with pictures. Think of your own childhood picture books. Think of churches painting frescoes on the walls and stained glass windows. Think of the map of the subway. We use pictures all the time to tell ourselves stories about who we are in the world, how the world came to be, and how the world works. And, and pictures are at the heart of economics as well. So when I realized that, I went scurrying back to my textbooks that I discarded long ago, and I looked at all the pictures in them, and I realized that in those pictures lay a mindset that I had been taught, and they, they were still sitting in the visual cortex in the back of my brain, so those pictures linger long after all the equations and the words have faded, and they shape the way we think about what the economy is and what it's for and who we are in it and how it works. So they shape our ideas at the most profound level. And, and, so many people study economics that they then go off and, you know, study Econ 101 and then become a politician or a businessman or um, a lawyer or a journalist. And we take that mindset with us. So I realized that if we don't rewrite, we can't rewrite the story if we don't change the pictures. So the seven ways to think at the heart of my book, you could really call them seven ways to draw like a 21st century economist. And I've shown the old diagrams that have trapped us in old thinking, 
and why we need to discard them and replace them with new ones. I'll give you an example of one diagram, the most famous diagram in economics. If I say to anyone who's ever studied economics, what's the first diagram you ever learned? Let me try. What's the first diagram you learned in economics? Supply and demand. Thank you very much, <laughs> supply and demand. And so it's like a little X, right? If you put your two fingers crossing each other, little X, that's the supply and demand curve. Such a simple little diagram, but what's it telling us? It First of all, it tells us that apparently the market is in an equilibrium and it'll return to equilibrium. And that's because economists desperately wanted to make economics as reputable a science as physics. They saw Isaac Newton and his great success and his impact in the world. And they said, right, we're going to make economics like physics. So they literally took ideas from physics and drew them, drew pictures of the economy as if it was physics. Not because they observed that that was the way the real world was, but because they wanted to model it on physics. So we, we all taught this mindset as if the economy restores itself to equilibrium and price pulls it back in the same way that gravity will pull a ball to rest. Well, that's just not true. And the financial crash of 2008 proved uh, uncontrovertibly that that is not the case. The economy actually is a complex, ever-evolving, adaptive, dynamic system. It's much more like a garden than like a machine. So we have to understand that it's always evolving, always moving. It bunches up and it, uh, it spreads out and we, it creates bubbles and then they crash down. That people move in herds and we follow each other. So if you want to be a good economist, don't try and pull on the so-called levers of the economy and thinking that you're like an engineer leveraging this bit or that. You've got to be like a gardener. You've got to be willing to get your hands dirty in the soil. You've got to pull some weeds out, put some plants in, trim them back. So that's about regulating the space in which in which a business, which is like an organic plant, can grow. But it's not it's not laissez-faire. Any, anyone who thinks, you know, a Hayek, that the economist Hayek once said economists should be more like gardeners, but I think he never did a decent day's work in the garden himself because gardening is hard work and you get stuck in. So we need to stop thinking of ourselves as engineers and that the economy is somehow a machine that follows laws because it isn't and it doesn't. We need to think of ourselves as garden designers and how we create the economy is how we design the garden and that's all to play for. That's what I think is actually so empowering because in the 20th century, when we thought the economy followed laws of motion and you just if, if the economy is getting more unequal, it just needs to grow some more and then it'll become more equal. That was not true. Actually, we need to design the economy from scratch to make it distributive of resources, distributive of knowledge, distributive of opportunity, distributive of the wealth that's created in a business. So you could have an employee owned company where the the, the value that's created in that company is distributed among the employees. You can have a neighborhood that's networked with solar panels and the energy that those houses are creating is distributed amongst the community. These are the ways we can redesign our economy. And it's very empowering because it means we all have a hand in reshaping the economy. This week's episode is brought to you by the fine folks over at Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference, so it's important to know where your food comes from. Thankfully, for less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers delicious, quality food, courtesy of over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. right to your door, supporting a more sustainable food system and setting the highest standards for ingredients. Plus, with Blue Apron's freshness guarantee, you can be sure that every ingredient in your delivery will arrive ready to cook or they'll make it right. It's no wonder they are the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. 
I've had Blue Apron for months and I've been telling all my friends and all my family members, you have to try it. It is absolutely fantastic. So now on to the good stuff. Here are some of the meals available in April. Spinach and fresh mozzarella pizza with olives, bell peppers, and ricotta salada. Sweet and sour salmon with bok choy, carrot and ginger fried rice. Parmesan crusted chicken with creamy fettuccine and roasted broccoli. And baby broccoli and fontina paninis with hard-boiled egg and arugula salad. All right, you've got to check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash smart people. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so do not wait. That's blueapron.com slash smart people. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And now back to the episode. Yeah, you know, what you said right there, especially at the end, we had a, a guest on not that long ago, and he was talking about, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, it was um, Richard Wolff. This guy named Dr. Richard Wolf, and he was talking about capitalism being broken, and it was a controversial episode. But one of the things he mentioned was um, employee ownership. He said, you know, if we stopped giving the ownership of our companies to a very select few and instead gave them to the employees, it's a great way to distribute wealth and inspire, you know, creativity and hard work, and then a fair kind of pay and also a fair opportunity for large amounts of growth. And I just thought that was fascinating. And then you're kind of saying the same thing. So it leads me to believe this is a, this is something that could be gaining some steam here. I think it is. I think it absolutely is. Because if you think about it, there's something very odd. And and Marjorie Kelly has done wonderful work on this too. uh, Something very odd about the idea that the owners of a company are people who have never stepped through its door, but people who have, put some money into it and may withdraw it at any time. Mm. In fact, they don't have an interest in what the company's doing. They're only looking at the number on the dividend and they will withdraw at a moment's notice if that falls below what they want. That Those people own a company, that's such a strange idea. And yet the people who turn up every day, come to work in the snow and in the summer, they put their labor into making it work, that they would be the first to be fired when the company turns down. That's a very strange mentality. So as you just said, Richard Wolf is saying, flip that around. When a company is owned by its employees, suddenly they have a transformed sense of um, investment in how well they're doing their work, how well they're working together as a team. And as I've seen in certainly friends of mine who work in employee-owned companies during the financial crisis, Well, they were able as a group of employees to get together and say, right, orders are down. A a financially owned company would say, well, last out, you know, last in, first out. We're going to sack some people here. Sorry, you know, 10, 15 percent of the workforce have to go. The employee owned companies can say, let's all agree we will work 10 percent fewer hours so that none of us lose our job. So actually, it has a really good adaptive mechanism within it to work variable hours so there's a lot of advantages. Of course, it, it can run into challenges about, well, where do we raise the finance in the first place? Yeah. Right? So that we're back to the financial question right. about needing innovative financial sources that enable that to happen. But uh, there are some great examples of employee-owned companies. Um, it, it's not, it, of course, it's been going on for centuries. The cooperative movement is very, a close cousin of the employee-owned company. It's being rediscovered today, and that's what makes it very exciting that people think, actually, why wouldn't we do this? Why wouldn't we reorganize ourselves this way? 
Let me ask you, because another thing you touched on that I just really loved is this idea that we tend to look at uh, how we learned economics, or at least how I did, as the, the laws of economics, just like you said, right? And, and the, the drawing that correlation between physics and economics is brilliant. Um, what I'm wondering is, when and how did those laws serve us in the past? Like, how did they, or did they at all, get us to where we are, which is undoubtedly better than where we were 100, 200 years ago? And when did they break? Or, or you know, what was kind of the... Uh, thing that pushed him over the edge until, okay, these aren't serving us anymore. We need to, to take a new look at this. That is such a great question. I And I love this topic of realizing how economics has been so desperate to be like physics and the pernicious effects that that has had. So we talked about the supply and demand curve and how the fundamental idea at the heart of economics is that the market will be, will restore equilibrium just as gravity will restore a, you know, pull something to rest. Um, that that idea created what's known as laissez-faire economics, which is, well, if the market will restore equilibrium, that equilibrium will be good and it will return itself to the right equilibrium. So there's no need for government intervention. And that, I think, was the 20th century debate. Do you believe that the market is first and best? Or do you believe actually there's a role for government? It was the debate between Hayek, who said, let the market work, and Keynes, who said, the market will get stuck in a, in a low point, we need the government to intervene. But that was just one of the effects of this, this uh, obsession with physics. To me, the really pernicious effects for, came out in that economists started looking for laws of motion, just as Newton found the laws of motion of an apple falling from a tree or for planets rotating around each other. Economists started to, to look for the laws of motion. And there are two that have had enormous effect on our societies and on our economic narratives over the last half century. So the first one was in 1955, and a brilliant economist called Simon Kuznets said, I think I found an economic law of motion. Anyway, he didn't use exactly those words, but he said, I think I found a pattern of how economies evolve. What he thought he'd seen was that, and he was looking at the UK, the US, Germany, France, and he thought that in the scant data he had, that as economies got richer, first of all, they became more unequal between the rich and the poor in the economy. Got, things got more unequal, but then it turned and they got more equal again. Now, that was an amazing promise. As our economy is growing, if things are getting more equal, if the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, don't worry. Hold on, because actually it's got to get worse before it gets better and more growth will make it better. That's what his diagram, which is a very famous diagram called the Kuznets curve, it looks like an upside down U or the way a child would draw a hill, it just goes up and then it comes down again. And it was this promise that inequality is gonna get worse, but don't worry, it's gonna get better. Now imagine the, if the political effect of that, if it really is a law of motion, then stop asking for redistribution because you're just stopping us from moving forward. Stop complaining about inequality it's actually helping us grow so it had huge impacts on uh saying you know like distribution is a dirty word in the 1990s another one came along another group of economists said oh just as simon kuznets thought he found this law of motion about inequality it has to get worse before it gets better we found another one 
and it's about environmental degradation and pollution. And we think in the data we've got, the data is incomplete, but we kind of think we can see this pattern that as countries are growing, pollution gets worse, but then it's then it starts to get better. Here's the good news story, guys. Don't worry about pollution <laughs> because the law of motion seems to say that it's got to get worse before it gets better. And more growth will make it better. So you environmentalists over there who are hollering about the, you know, the pesticides or the, the, the air pollution, just quieten down now. You don't understand economics, right? We've got this law of motion. It's going to sort itself out. So there we have these two extraordinary laws of motion that told us if you're worried about inequality and if you're worried about environmental pollution, you should understand this. It's got to get worse before it gets better. And more growth is what's going to make it better. Now, it's turned out in the last, I'd say, 10 years that more newer economists with more data and better analysis have proven that both of those laws of motion are just false. They don't exist. And we can design economies to be equal or unequal. We can design them to respect the environment and to work within the living systems of Earth or to be entirely degrading and creating massive pollution. There is no law of motion. It's up to us to be the designers. So getting rid of this idea of physics and wanting to be like physics and finding the laws of motion, it's been so damaging in the 20th century and it's put growth front and center of economic issues because growth is going to sort everything out. We now have to take a good hard look at that and say, no, we need to design our economies so that they're distributive and that everybody gets a share of value and so that they're regenerative and so that they work within the processes of life. This to me is the exciting 21st century adventure. We're not physicists, we're garden designers. I love that. Let's talk about this idea of growth and forgive my, you know, naivete, I guess, you know, what, how is that a solution? Because growth in relation to what I, I think about it, say one country is talking about economic growth. The, if you're talking about it from a financial perspective, that money is coming from somewhere else. So it seems more just like a transfer of power perhaps. And again, I don't really know. That's why I'm asking you, but in my head, that's what I see. So how have they you know, utilize this idea of growth to solve all problems. What does it mean? So the idea of, um, so when we talk, when people talk about growth and the word is just often bandied around like that, but actually what's being talked about is uh, economic growth, meaning GDP growth, gross domestic product. And that is the total value of goods and services that are sold in the monetary economy of a country in a year. So it's all the value that passes through the market and, and passes through the value um, of spending by the state. When that, that the metric, the measure of gross domestic product, it was created actually by Simon Kuznets again, this brilliant economist. Uh, he created it. He was asked by the U.S. Congress to come up with a monetary measure of the output of the U.S. economy in the 1930s. So this is post uh, post depression, and you know everybody said what happened there, and we need to have a better way of measuring our economy. Are things getting better or not? So Simon Kuznets was asked to create this measure. He came up with this measure. And when he could measure the value of the goods and services produced in the U.S. economy in one year, I think it was 1934, 1934 or five, and then he could measure it the next year and the year after that. Now we're looking at a trend and we can start to ask, is the value of goods and services that we're producing going up or not? And 
and then it began to be measured by in other countries oh how's the value of our goods and services go, doing compared to the uk or compared with the the ussr in the 1950s in the cold war and it became this driving measure of is our economy doing well because of course if we're trying to meet people's needs it seems like a, a reasonable thing to say well the best measure of that is whether we're producing more goods and services because surely that's what's meeting people's needs but this metric of growth became an addiction i would say we and our economies have been structured not merely to desire growth and welcome it but actually to demand to de expect and to depend upon it so today we have economies that are financially politically and socially addicted to continual GDP growth. And, and companies, that's the thing. I look at the short-term nature of, uh, you know, having to hit quarterly goals, and people now can't think past them because they're not allowed to. I mean, their job is literally, their livelihood is under attack. And so that just leads to more Band-Aids on top of more Band-Aids. And, of course, we, we see what happens there, right? And there's one of the things I talk about in what I do with consulting is, you know, oftentimes if you are only asking for compliance, you will actually get manipulation. And we see that with mm -hmm. banks and we see it in, in the workforce, people who are forced to show something and in, in time bound that doesn't have necessarily the meaning, but has the kind of the growth of the, the quarterly numbers, et cetera, will start creating ways that are detrimental just to hit those. Yeah, and so this is a great example of, I would say, 20th century uh, business models that see all value as financial value and don't don't understand the dependence of business upon the society or upon the living world. And the structures of those companies are forcing people, your friends, my friends, our colleagues, people we know who work in these institutions, whose incentives are you have to show that your sector your margin has grown quarter on quarter because that's how the market's judging you and so it's this shaping of incentives that make people behave in incredibly narrow ways and actually gets them completely stressed and, and not enjoying their job because right. it's not a rewarding way to behave right. um and going back actually to the employee-owned companies interestingly i um when an employee-owned company if, if So a friend of mine, he, he works in an employee-owned company, and it, they make websites for people, and there's about 20 of them. And he, I was asking him about it, you know, what happens when the demand for your work goes up? And he says, well, doesn't mean we have to expand. We have a conversation. Do we want to keep expanding our company? Actually, we think 20 is about a good size for us. Wow. And we don't need to keep expanding. Now, because they're employee-owned, because it, they're, they're financing themselves, they don't have shareholders saying, I need my return – they are not forced to grow. But because so many companies are un, un, share-owned, shareholder-owned, they have this financial pressure that structurally requires them to show that they're continually growing. So that's a really good example of how we're financially addicted and locked into continual growth. Uh, we're also politically locked in because I, I think of the G20 photograph, you know, that picture that's taken of the, the world's most powerful leaders who meet every year, the G20 meetings. Mm -hmm. I think of it as like a, a G20 family photo, right? All the world's leaders want to be in that picture. You've made it. Your country's the big, in, in, with, in there with the big boys. No leader wants to lose their position in that photograph, right? No, no one wants to be kicked out of the, the, the family picture. But if you were to say, if any one country was to say, okay, we're, we're going to create an economy now that doesn't need to grow. We're going to thrive rather than grow. While the rest of the world carries on trying to grow, 
who knows, in two or three years' time, you might lose your place to the next emerging economy powerhouse. So collectively, as a group of countries, we're and to me, this is one of the biggest challenges, actually, this G20 family photo problem. We're collectively locked in because it's very geopolitically difficult for any one country to say, right, we're going to move away from GDP as the goal and have a goal of thriving like a country like Bhutan has. Perhaps they can do that because they're not in the G20. They, already, they feel free not to compete. So we have a collective action problem there around politics and rethinking who we are as a global community and the fact that we can't all continually keep growing because nothing in nature grows forever, whether right. it's your children's feet or the Amazon rainforest. Things go through an incredible growth spurt, but then they mature and they thrive at a mature size. And to me, there's a really big question as to why we wouldn't expect an economy to do the same. Things that keep growing forever, I mean, nothing actually does grow forever. Some things try to grow forever. They usually destroy themselves or the host on which they depend, cancer being the ultimate example. So we need to get really smart about the relationship between the economy, society, and the living world and ask what's the optimum size at which the economy should reach you and thrive mm -hmm. rather than be locked into some kind of Peter Pan economics that we think we must always be growing. Right. Because it's a it's an inheritance from this 20th century obsession. And I think we're in very dangerous waters if we don't rethink a larger vision about what we mean, we think thriving means in the 21st century. Well, I think you just titled your next book, by the way, Peter Pan Economics. I like yeah. that. I mean, I'd buy that, too. <laughs> I want to get really specific here because I want to believe it. I really do. So let's take a company like Uber. OK, and say Uber uh, the founder, the, the guy comes up with this idea and he says, okay, I have this idea, but in order to make it work, I need to be first to market. I need to scale quickly so that I can, you know, stamp out competitors and, you know, lead in my industry and all that. And in order to do that, I need resources. So I prove this concept in some way. And then I go and I get investors and I'm going to go to the people with a lot of money and I get, I mean, millions and mil tens of millions, right? Hundred million, whatever it is in investment, which allows me to boom, scale. Now I'm huge, I'm successful. And I've shortened that time to bring this amazing service to market. How do we, t you know, maybe it's not the employee owned company. That's just the one that's on the top of my mind. Um, how would we change that to, to take the power away from the, investor or, or the the typical view of the investor in that role which is what kind of reinforces that quarterly earnings mentality how could we deal with that and how could a company like uber deal with it to a point where they're not just um stamped out by a competitor who goes raises more money and, and beats them out mm, great question thank you for a tough question <laughs> <laughs> okay so i i'm not gonna solve the uber business model problem but i'm gonna reflect on the kind of business model that it has, particularly the, the network structure that it uses. So Uber exists because of the digital networks that have sprung up and that we're all now hooked into. That's what makes it possible. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than just, you you know, used to turn up at your friend's neighborhood and say, hey, can you give me the number for a local taxi company? And so we were, we were all fragmented into that. Now we can just tap into this network. The reason why Uber's become so powerful in the same way that has Google and eBay and Amazon is because they benefit from these network effects, which is, again, now we think of the economy as a complex adaptive system, 
one of the things that happens is that you get um, success to the successful, it's called. It's a feedback loop. So once you start to grow, everybody's heard of your name and then people start using you and mm, then you grow sure. <laughs> and then more people have heard of you, right? So Google is perhaps the, or all of them actually, they're the ultimate examples. We could all name them. And so you gain more and more success when you outcompete the others. But the platform that it's actually built upon is the digital network, the internet. And that is the most can also be structured in a completely different way, not one winner takes all, but it could be structured as the digital commons in which there are, again, is a distributive network. So the the technology under this has the potential to be incredibly distributed. Let me just contrast it with, say, uh, railways, which there's only one railway, right? And whoever controls the railway line really controls the trade between these two cities or these two coasts. It's a very highly centralized technology. The digital technology is the opposite. It has the potential to be incredibly decentralized. At the moment, it's been captured by business models that have figured out how to do a winner takes all attitude. I hope, I sincerely hope that smart thinkers will come through who say, no, I'm not gonna try and fix Uber here, but rather say, how do we bring up something that competes alongside it, that taps into a broader set of values? Because we've all heard of Uber, mm. but we've also all heard of problems with Uber. Uh, in the UK, we have a delivery company called Deliveroo. We've all heard of Deliveroo, but we've all heard of the problems with Deliveroo as well and how workers are treated. If we can tap into the values that people have, what about if somebody could create um, an alternative platform that still brings together many drivers or deliverers, uses the network effects um, of the distributive commons, but actually does it in a way that is run by the employees. Like, why can't Uber be run by its employees? Why can't delivery services empower their employees? There's nothing inherent in the technology that means it has to be centralized. Some very smart companies have got in there early and centralized their control over it, but it doesn't have to be that way. I'm hoping that that's going to be an early days effect of this very, very 21st century technology and that some very smart people, and there's a lot of them out there in the digital collaborative commons, will figure out how we can make this far more distributive. But again, it needs different kinds of financing and it also requires the public to want to do it differently so that in the same way that everyone's heard of Uber and now they've got the Uber app, we need a second wave that says, oh, have you heard? There's this really great alternative to Uber. Mm. I can't, I, I, wish on the, I wish on the spur of the moment I could think of a really cool name of an employee owned taxi um, we are taxis or something and that oh I want to I want to go with that because I've, I've heard about the problems with these these me mega companies I want to be in one that actually respects the, the employees they get the decent share of the wages um, you know it's that it, it's distributive so I'm I haven't got the solution for that and and that's why we've seen these massive Googles and Amazons and Ebays because there's some very very smart people who figured out how to centralize uh, control over the network but the the positive thing is the point the networks don't have to be treated like that they can be far more distributive so i don't know the answer but i have a lot of hope that there are other ways of doing this well you actually kind of opened my eyes there i mean i don't there's not necessarily an answer but i just was wondering how would a company like uber get off the ground if we didn't utilize the same funding model as we always have but but to your point one of the things you're saying is okay maybe it wouldn't have and, and now we have uber but now that we have Uber, imagine if somebody created, because it's not that hard, they don't own a lot, right? Created a, um, a similar software, but 
the social mission and the everything, the values and the way the companies run is more in line with, like you said, distributive or just beneficial for people on the planet, uh, perhaps that would be enough to take that market share, create a company that is now, you know, uh, whatever, more, more, again, more distributive or more beneficial. And it did it in a different way. I don't really know. I mean, this is really highbrow and it's hard to come off the cuff. I would like to say for listeners, uh, if you have ideas on this, head to the this episode on our on our website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and leave some leave your thoughts in the comments. And we don't do that very often, but this is something I'd love to I'd love to have a distributive approach to sol- solving the problem, or at least discussing it. Actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. And I'm just going to chuck in a few examples to show that there are other places where it might have seemed impossible, and it's already been done. Great. So. Uh, when we buy tea or coffee or chocolate, twenty years ago, there were big household names in you know in in our own your country maybe Lipton's tea in my country Thai food tea and that was the tea that you could buy and yet today fair trade yeah. trademark tea coffee and chocolate has become very mainstream and many people will only buy that because they know that the growers and the workers down the supply right. chain are getting a decent return and it's it done. You know, they want to be part of that chain. Uh, Banks, the monoliths of banks. And yet today there are cooperative banks. There are um, socially um, banks that have social value at the heart of their missions, savings funds that have social environmental value, uh, you know, large investment funds are now investing in these things. So there are alternatives and people are starting to say, you know what, I want my pension to be in a responsible fund, because that's part of the value that I wish to generate. It's not only financial. I'm not only I'm not only motivated by money. So I want to put my money in places that respect the whole of who I am. Mobile phones, uh, smartphones, right? We have a few big name companies, and yet now there's a company called Fairphone who are producing phones with um, decent wages and conditions for workers, which is really important in the mobile phone business because there's some terrible things going on, but also responsibly mined minerals and metals. So again, you know, so their phone at the moment is more expensive, but it's coming up. So, and then lastly, I'm going to talk about software, right? We used to have only Microsoft and Windows. And then a young man called Linus Torvald sat in his dorm and said, just for fun, he was going to write a bit of open source code. And he created Linux, the world's most effective and widely used operating software. And it's even now used by, uh, you know, it's even used by Microsoft. And he wrote, he started writing it. A whole community came together around him and people sat there until three in the morning creating code because they loved making something together. So these things sound impossible until they've happened. And I think Linux, this operating system is the most positive example because it's again it's in the digital commons it's in the space this new space and it could have been just dominated by a few major corporate giants and yet look the people's contribution and the people's collective work has countered that and actually succeeded better so i hold hope open that the same thing could happen in the space of uber in the space of delivery companies that they don't have to be exploitative and centralized because the distributive network is asking us to create something distributed Wow. Yeah. And and look, I'm hopeful too. And it's what, you know, for the listeners, if you enjoy this and if you're, this has your wheels turning, 
You really, Kate, go into so much detail in your book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Um, we haven't, I mean, th these are all things that are covered, but one of the things I, I cannot let you get away with is tell us this idea of the donut. Like, just so people are wondering why is it called Donut Economics, we didn't cover that, and I want to make sure we do. Okay. So it's, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Putting junk food right at the front of no, rewriting that. the... I'm going to the cover <laughs> of your book. <laughs> so the reason it's called The Donut is because a few years ago, I drew a picture of, because I love drawing pictures and I believe they're important, I drew a picture of what does well-being for humanity look like in the 21st century. And it turned out, strange as it sounds, looking like an American donut, the one with a hole in the middle. So mm. imagine in front of you an American donut that hole in the middle is a space of deprivation. It's a space where people are falling short on life's essentials. So it's where people don't have enough food or water or energy, education, housing, healthcare to lead a life of dignity and opportunity and community. So we want to get everybody out of the hole in the middle and into that juicy, sweet, crunchy bit of the donut itself. But then the outer crust is also important because if we go beyond the outer crust of the donut, we would be putting too much pressure on Earth's life-supporting systems, like too much pressure on the climate system or on the water system. We would be tipping our planet out of the incredibly benevolent and stable system that it's provided us with for the last 11,000 years. So we want to get everybody out of the hole in the middle of the space of deprivation, but we also want to stay within the outer crust so that we don't push Earth out of this safe space. We want to meet everybody's needs and rights, and to do that, we need a stable climate. We need healthy oceans. We need plenty of uh, fresh water. We need bountiful biodiversity. We need a protective ozone layer, because these are the fundamental systems on which all of our well-being depends. And I think this century, we're more and more going to understand that human health and well-being and planetary health and well-being are inseparably linked, and that thriving is about doing those together. So it's a big idea and it's got a crazy name of a donut on it. Uh, but uh, I hope if folks go to your podcast and we could put a link there and they could see a picture of the donut and see that at the moment, of course, many millions of people live without their most basic needs. And we've already too, put too much pressure on several of Earth's life-giving systems, like the climate system, on biodiversity loss, on land conversion. So we need to get everyone out of deprivation and poverty and come back within Earth's life-giving systems. To me, it's the 21st century generational challenge, and it could just be the one donut that turns out to be good for us. Ah, well, thank you for helping us solve this, you know? <laughs> and the, the one donut that is good for us but might not taste as good. Well, Kate, <laughs> it was it was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for, for being on the show. Again, the book Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. Wonderful. Great talking to you. Yes, I, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for staying up late tonight. And thank you again for being on the show. All right. All right. Thanks. Pleasure. Kate. Cheers. Bye, bye. Bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kate Rayworth. Her book, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, can be found at your local bookstore or on Amazon. And as always, if you do decide to purchase her book through Amazon, please make sure to do it through our Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Anything you purchase through that link will come to no extra cost to you and gives us a nice little kickback from Amazon to help us keep the lights on 
here at the podcast. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, you can always head over to iTunes and leave us a rating, review, and comment over there. We would greatly appreciate it. If you want to reach out to the show and say hi to Chris and I, or leave us a guest suggestion or any feedback on the show, you can always reach us via email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com, or go ahead and start a conversation with us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you want to stay up to date of all things Smart People Podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter over at smartpeoplepodcast.com, and we promise we will not spam your mailbox. All right, that's it for us this week. We've got some great interviews coming up, so we will see you all next episode. Music